uh, atheist, Christopher Hitchens, a year before he died, was asked to write uh, a death memoir for the magazine Vanity Fair. And when writing about his death, he wrote about what he expected to take place. And he wrote this, Christopher Hitchens will cease to be, no sequel will be made, my body will be subject to the nervous dissection of medical students, and ploughed as chemicals back into the earth, my final contribution being to make surrounding muck nutritious. He had no belief in the continuance of his person beyond the grave. Uh, he believed decomposition was all that awaited his body. And that is a faith position. That faith position is held by many people today, uh, not just people who would claim to be atheists, but even at Easter time, as we discovered, by some people who claim to be Christian. According to a BPC uh, survey carried out last month, it seems that 25% of people who say they believe in God don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus or a future resurrection for us all. So, interesting, the headline blared on many newspapers, 25% of Christians don't believe the resurrection. Scandalous. Not really. It really should have read 100% of Christians believe the resurrection. But the statistic and that attitude or mentality, that skepticism, doesn't really surprise me. Um, not when you read passages like this one today and find out that the whole idea that this life is all there is and there is no happy ever after is as, was as much a first century problem as it was, uh, as it is a 21st century problem. And uh, Matthew, writing 2,000 years ago, is quick to point out at the start of this passage that these Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection either, even though they claimed to believe in God. And that's the issue, this resurrection. This is the question they want an answer to from Jesus in this, the last week of his life. He's just a few days before the cross and indeed his resurrection. And uh, just as we did last week, the, the two points that will frame this sermon are number one, the question, and number two, the answer. Dead simple. First of all, then, the question in verses 23 to 28. Matthew's already helped us out by giving us a little bit of context as to who we're talking about here, these Sadducees. About, he's telling us who's asking the question, but it's helpful to know one or two other details uh, about them. The Sadducees were these wealthy aristocrats back then, and they held most of the priestly positions in the temple, and they actually ran the temple business. So one of the reasons that they're quite keen to interrogate Jesus and get rid of Jesus is because they're the ones who are suffering a loss for the fact that a few days before this, he's come in and he's disrupted their temple business. He's turned over the money changers. He's driven people out. They're not happy about the prospect of losing money or actually their positions, their positions of wealth and power. You see, if the Romans reckon that Jesus is an insurrectionist or a would-be one anyway, they would come in and they would get rid of him. And actually they would do more than that. They would make a statement by really judging Jerusalem as a whole. So they want to avoid any loss of money. They want to avoid any loss of power or prestige. That's why they come and interrogate him. Now, these Sadducees, along with the Pharisees, made up the ruling council in Israel. It's called in the Bible the Sanhedrin. Uh, though these two groups didn't get along. In fact, these Sadducees didn't really get along with many people. They were unpopular. 
Uh, Jewish historian uh, Josephus writes a lot about these guys, tells us they're just harsh and overbearing, so that when their hand went up to ask the question, um, some might say that the crowd who was watching, their eyes rolled and they groaned or booed. You know, they didn't like these guys. But it wasn't just their character that made them unpopular. It was their convictions too. You see, these Sadducees were, who, were what we call liberals when it came to doctrine. The vast majority of the Jewish people, including the Pharisees, believed that every book of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, was inerrant. It was God's breathed and it was from God, but not the Sadducees. For them, just the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, were scripture. They happily took scissors to the rest and refused to accept any doctrine that did not have its source in these first five books of the Bible. That's why they're rejecting any teaching about resurrection. They're arguing that there's no clear statement in Genesis to Deuteronomy on the afterlife. Therefore, they're not going to have any of it. They probably argued a lot with the Pharisees about it, and they're certainly going to try and argue with Jesus about it. So this is the subject of their question. It is a question about the resurrection. It says that when they came to him with a question about the resurrection, they said, they're basically saying, it's, no, it's not the Christ's resurrection that's in question here. We need to understand this. What, what the question they're asking is not about the resurrection of Jesus. That's not taking place yet. It's still to come. But this is the resurrection. The resurrection is the name that's given to the event at the end of history when Jesus returns in power and great glory when every person who has ever lived is raised to life. Why? For two reasons. First of all, judgment. Jesus said himself in John chapter 5 that a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the vo his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will be condemned. Okay, Daniel 12 in the Old Testament says the same thing. The second reason, it's not just judgment, it's glorification. Now glorification is the word that we use to describe when God completes what he started in those he has saved. It's when we are fully and finally conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Morally, never to sin again, it's gone. And physically, never to die again. Death is vanquished, it's gone. Paul talked about this in Philippians chapter 3, 20 to 21, when he said, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's what he's talking about. That's what they're talking about when they're asking a question about the resurrection. Now, the idea of this event might be complete news to you. It might be brand new, but it's fundamental to the Christian faith. Now, I wonder if you know that the Bible doesn't teach that when you die, you sleep in some kind of catatonic state. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So our, our spirits go to be with God when we die. 
But the Bible doesn't teach that our eternal state is this kind of disembodied existence. It teaches that one day our souls will be gloriously reunited with our bodies, reconstituted and transformed. And Paul longs for the day when his body will be raised. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, We do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. That's what we're looking forward to. And now you might think, well, that's bizarre. What about people who died thousands of years ago? Or what about, you know, and they're, they're just, what are they now? They're just atomic, subatomic particles. What, what are we going to do about this? What about people that have been eaten by sharks or, you know, all these random ways of dying that I really don't want to go into right now? Um, it doesn't matter. The Lord in his great glory and power is able to reconstitute exactly what he wants to reconstitute. I mean, if he in Genesis can create a man from the dust of the earth and the word of his mouth, surely nothing is impossible for him, right? The third thing we could see about the resurrection is the Bible doesn't teach that our final destination is heaven. It's not this disembodied state when we die. I mean, if that's what we're looking forward to, it's a good thing. It's going to be wonderful, but it's not our final call. I mean, if we just look forward to some kind of bodiless existence in heaven, we're the kind of person who's happy getting off the plane in Reykjavik when we should be in New York. It just doesn't make sense. Although Reykjavik is a lovely place, I understand. The apostle Peter, though, says we are looking forward to the new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness. That that is our final destination. And that is all encapsulated in this question about the resurrection. This is the resurrection that the Sadducees reject. A physical future reality in the presence of God. They don't like it. They can't find a verse for it in Genesis to Deuteronomy. And that's why they come to him trying to flummox him with this complicated case. Verse 24, look with me. Teacher, they say insincerely. Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, what are they talking about here? They're talking about a piece of Jewish civil legislation that was aimed at looking after those who could be left destitute in a society that didn't have a welfare state or any kind of benefit system the law in question is that Moses gave was really from God. It was called leveret marriage. And in this particular scenario, uh, well, in that law, it basically said that uh, if, if a, a, a man died and left his wife a widow with no children, then it was the, the option for the brother, and it was strongly encouraged for the brother uh, to marry that wife and have children. So to continue, as it says in Deuteronomy, his name and his line. It was very important at the time um, when maintaining the family name and the family land rights was important. Now in this particular scenario though, they think they've got him. They think they've got a cracker of a scenario. So a man dies without leaving any heir. And in accordance with Leverett marriage, his wife marries his brother. But uh, brother number two dies, and the third brother marries the wife. And the same thing happens to brother four, five, and six. And surely by the time we get to the seventh brother, the, he's standing at the altar thinking, this is very suspicious. Uh, this woman is like a black widow spider or a terrible cook or something like that. 
But he, anyway, he says, I do, and then he dies, right? That's just the way it goes. But then so does she. So the case is dropped. No, anyway, um, she dies too. But here's the question. Whose wife is she? At the resurrection, in this bodily existence to come that you guys talk about, whose wife will she be? But to them, this is just a joke. They've probably trapped the Pharisees with this dilemma before. That's why they come with confidence to Jesus with it. But their aim is to discredit him. They're not interested in finding out the answer. And they want to ridicule the idea of resurrection. They're probably high-fiving each other thinking, we've got him here. But what does Jesus say in response? And here's number two, the answer. What does Jesus say, first of all, verse 29? He says, you're in error. You're, you're badly mistaken. You're just wrong. And your error is rooted in ignorance. You think that you're experts in Genesis to Deuteronomy, but actually you, by even offering this scenario, betray the fact that you don't know what you're talking about. And he says, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. So you, you lack knowledge. You're ignorant in two particular areas. And this is what leads you to ask these kind of questions with an unwarranted confidence. Many believers who question Christianity are like this, aren't they? Don't they tackle the straw men? They, they like to attack the caricature of Christianity and can't understand for the life of them why people don't end up saying, oh, do you know what? This Christian faith is a lot of nonsense. Let's just chuck it and go on and do what we want to do. Well, it's because they're attacking the caricature, which we don't even believe in. Well, this is what they're doing. Jesus says to people like that and to these Sadducees, you're badly mistaken on the subject of resurrection on two counts. You don't know the word of God and you don't know the power of God. And Jesus elaborates on these two points in what follows in these verses of 29 uh, of 30 uh, through to 32. And that's what we're going to look at just now. You don't know the power of God, he says. You just, you just don't know what God can do if you're offering a scenario like this. Now, Jesus is making a point here about what life in the new heaven and new earth is like. What's his point? He's saying, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. What's he saying? He's saying that God is powerful enough to transform our existence so that we won't need to get married and have children for life to continue in the resurrection. In God's power, he makes us able to live forever. And the reason Jesus throws the angels into the mix is to say that they are a case in point. To a world where death is inevitable and grief is painful, God says, I am able to make you to be like these angelic beings. I'm able to make you live forever. Now, the Sadducees just can't get their head around this at all. They picture the resurrection just like this life, as a continuation of this life, that the relationships we have in the here and now continue in the ever after, where institutions that are fundamentally necessary in this life are similarly necessary in the next life. But Jesus says, no, that's not true. 
It's true to say at the resurrection there will be both continuity, there will be things that will be the same and carry over, but there will be discontinuity as well. There will be things that will be different. So he says that the you that's really you here will really be the you that's there, okay? You know, the, the, the reconstituted and transformed Liam Garvey that will be in the new heaven and new earth is the same Liam Garvey that's talking to you right now. Look at the person next to you. Why is that funny? I don't understand. <laughs> okay, well, like the, the people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are in the new heaven and new earth that you have known so well here, whether, it's a, a, whether you're members in the same church or husband and wife, you will know each other in that time. There will be continuity, but there's discontinuity too. In this example, our existence is so different in this, the happiest place ever in the new heaven and new earth, that no one stays married and no one gets married. There's no weddings, there's no matrimony, I dare say no sex. It's obvious though when you think about it. I mean, the purpose of marriage was and, and is in this time to multiply life on earth and display Christ's relationship to his church. But in the new heavens and new earth, where people live forever, there is no practical need for procreation. Neither is there any need for marriage to image the relationship between Christ and the church. Because in the new heaven and new earth, it's there, it's reality. You're living it out. Isn't that funny? Isn't it hard to get our heads around? It is. Someone once said to me in the past, I'm not really sure like this. You know, I love, I love my spouse so much. I'm, you know, if, 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 going in, if being in the new heaven and new earth is like this and I'm not married to my husband, I'm not sure I want to be there. And I said, Catherine, it's okay. <laughs> Jesus will be there. That wasn't in the notes. Okay, that's, uh, anyway, Right, that's why I was looking over that way as well. Anyway, I mean, the, the point is, though, we don't need to worry about those kinds of questions. Because at the resurrection, actually, we will love those we've been married to on earth a million times better than we will ever have here. And more importantly, we'll be with Jesus, we'll be married forever to him. To him. And Jesus' point of saying, look, marriage is isn't forever, and then to go on and talk about the angels is, if to, is just to say, but you are. Marriage isn't forever, but you are. Life goes on. That's why I think this is what the reference to the angels is for. You'll be like the angels. What does that mean? Well, what are angels? The Bible tells us that angels are these ministering spirits, beings created to worship God and do his bidding. And Jesus is saying here that we're going to be so caught up doing the kind of things that they're doing. Being in God's presence forever. Worshipping the Lamb who was slain forever and ever and ever. Singing at the top of our voice. Glory and honor and power and strength to you all the time. And ministering for him, serving him in the new heaven and new earth with the tasks that he gives us with great joy. And that's what we're made for. 
And Jesus' point is God is powerful enough to make this happen and achieve it, to transform us, to make us to not die ever again, and to make us live forever. So he's saying, you Sadducees, and maybe even some of us here today, if you don't believe this, Jesus' word to you today is, you don't know just how powerful God is. You've underestimated him. You just don't know. Could it be that the reason for that is that you just don't know what the Bible teaches? And that's what Jesus goes on to talk about. He's, he said, you don't know the power of God. And he says, you don't know the word of God. And he says, you should have known this. He says, about the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read what God said to you? Now, Jesus wants to show them from the Old Testament, that the resurrection is not some obscure teaching. I mean, he could have taken them to plenty of places in Job where it says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God's bodily existence post-death. Daniel 12, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. It's there. But Jesus doesn't go there. He doesn't go to Isaiah either. He, he goes to Exodus 3. Why? Well, remember what I said at the start. The, the Sadducees only took the first five books of the Bible as God's word. So he takes them to the scriptures that they memorized, to the scriptures that they claimed they knew inside out to show them that the whole idea of resurrection is not absent from there. He takes them to Exodus 3, which in terms of the revelation of God to human beings, it is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Where God appears to Moses 400 years into their slavery in Egypt, and he says to Moses, I'm going to send you back to the people. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt so that they can come and be my people, and I will be their God. They will worship me, and I will set my affection on them. So he takes them to this phenomenal passage. And he says, have you not read what God said to you? Verse 32. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, Jesus says, but of the living. Now, how is that a verse that proves the reality of resurrection? Um, Many would just say, well, I mean, isn't God just identifying himself to Moses as the same God that his forefather worshipped? You know, do you know, do you know Abraham's God? Yeah, that's me. That's me who is appearing to you. But no, it's fascinating. The grammar in Hebrew shows that God is actually speaking about his relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense, not in the past tense. He's not saying, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, I still am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they are alive and well. There is life after death. And you, Sadducees, should have seen this. God is not the God of the dead, Jesus says. He's not an undertaker. He's not a cemetery attendant. He doesn't walk around the tombstones and point, there's Abraham's tombstone, man, he was a great guy. We got on really well. No, none of that. There is life beyond the grave. And he takes them to a very passage that they knew inside out and to say to them, you're ignorant. 
Now, we hear that term and think, oh, that's an offensive thing to say. But Jesus is simply saying to them, you don't know. You don't know the power of God to raise people from the dead, either to eternal life in heaven with him or eternal life apart from him in hell. And he says, you don't know the power of God because you don't know the scriptures well. But God is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus proves to them that God is a God of resurrection. And that the resurrection will come. Now, what's the application in this for us? What's the application for us, brothers and sisters? Those who trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. Those who love the Lord Jesus and say of his cross, that is my death, he died and I am living the life that he's given me. Do we question the resurrection? Or the prospect of this final state? Maybe we have some kind of theological difficulty with it. It could be that we don't grasp the power of God to do these incredible things, which just seem utterly mind-blowing, right? Could it be that we don't grasp the power of God because we don't know the word of God? This is what this passage says in bold italics and underlined. Know the scriptures, know his power. Know what the Bible teaches, know who God is and what he's going to do. And there's, there's an undeniable application in this. Don't make the same mistake as the Sadducees. Don't be like these religious liberals who happily take scissors to books of the Bible, trying to demythologize or even pass over the bits that they find hard to fit into a 21st century skeptical mind. But read the Bible and pray for a good grasp of God's almighty power. And if it's a struggle, ask someone you know who's read it to read it to you, to explain it to you and grow. Don't let that ignorance keep you from knowing and understanding that power, this truth. Maybe you don't question the resurrection. Maybe you do believe it. What is the application for us today then? Well, there's a few things. Certainly, it points us forward to the resurrection of the dead, to the new heaven and new earth, and says, look forward to it. Look forward to it. Um, be like Reapy Cheap. Okay, I used this in a sermon illustration in a, our two Peter series in the evening services a few weeks ago, but I figured half of you weren't there, so I'm going to do it again. That's all right. Reapy Cheap is the adorable and valiant mouse in the book, the, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Reapy Cheap loves Aslan, the great high king of Narnia, who, of course, represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Lewis depicts this little mouse, Reapy Cheap, as as a zealous follower, one who cannot help but look forward to being in Aslan's country and looking forward to that more than anything else. He sets his everything on it. He longs for it. And there is this wonderful passage in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader where Reepicheep explains this longing for the life to come, this longing to even be away from Narnia and to be properly clothed and glorified. He says, while I can, I sail east in the Dawn Treader towards Aslan's country. When she, the Dawn Treader, fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. 
When she sinks, I shall swim east with my forepaws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast waterfall, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. That's how much he longs for that country. That's a mark of his zeal for Aslan's country, and that should typify ours. Our zeal as followers of Christ for the new heaven and new earth, that's what we look forward to more than anything. 2 Peter says, we are looking forward to the new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness. 2 Peter 3 also encourages us to live like we belong to it and keep our eyes on that final destination. It says, so friends, since you're looking forward to this, the resurrection, the new heaven and new earth, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. The apostle Paul picks this up, of course, in 1 Corinthians, where he's got these two big issues between chapters 6 and 11, where he's talking about food sacrificed to idols, and his concern is about what you put into your body. And he's concerned about sexual immorality, and he's concerned about what you're doing with your body. And he says, honor God with your body. And all of that in the context of what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, that this body is going to be reconstituted. It's, this is the body that in some glorified state will be in the new heaven and new earth. Therefore, be spotless and blameless with it. Watch what you put into it and watch what you do with it. Be holy, blameless. And of course, we ought to bring other people into this, the resurrection, the new heaven and new earth. 2 Peter 3.15 goes on to say, bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation. So in other words, those who are looking forward to the return of Jesus make disciples knowing that this day and age, while we wait for Christ's return, while we wait for the onset of this new and wonderful existence, we do all that we can to bring as many people as possible into it with us. Is that what we're doing? Has this defined our lives in the last week? Let's pray by God's grace to take these things up a level, right? I look around and I see many people. I'm encouraged by what is happening in the life of our church, not just as a group, a, a church family together, but individually trying to live out the Christian life in this way, looking forward to heaven, trying to be like Jesus, trying to bring others into the kingdom. Oh, but let's take it up a level. Let's, by his grace, ask for his strength to persevere in these things. What about if you're here today and you're not a Christian? It's great that you are here. I wonder what you make of all of this. In our passage, the crowds are astonished at the very end of it and amazed. And not by his, Jesus' rhetoric in this kind of press scrum, but at his teaching. They, they left amazed, but it doesn't say that they left believing. And what I want you to do today is think about whether or not, to think about how you're going to leave. Not in terms of using your legs or getting into a car, but whether you're going to leave with an attitude to look into this or to believe it or to just completely disregard it. I read earlier from John 5, 28 to 29, this is a, this is a very, very important passage that talks about the resurrection from the mouth of Jesus Christ. 
He said, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And the good thing, of course, is to believe in Jesus. And those who have done what is evil, that is, the ultimate evil is to reject God's love and God's grace that has offered us in his Son. They will rise to be condemned. What will it be for you? Rise to live or rise to be condemned? That's a serious option. There's a serious, that, that deserves serious consideration, doesn't it? If you'd like to find out more about this, I'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe you can talk to the person who brought you. Um, if you look in your bulletins later, you'll see there's a note in there about a thing called Christianity Explored, which is just where people get together, they look through another account of the, bio, of the life of Jesus called Mark's Gospel, and they ask these questions about, what is this all about? I need to know more about it. That would be a great thing for you to go to. You go along with other people who are asking the same kind of questions. Why don't you ask the person who brought you otherwise to read the Bible with you? And we've got books that can help you to do that as well. It's really straightforward. But I want you to see, even as you go today, that Jesus died as a sacrifice for sin on the cross so that our sins might not prevent us from coming. Your sins might not prevent you from coming to him. And Jesus rose from the dead and gave many convincing proofs of his resurrection. And if only I had time to go into all of that. But he gave, he rose and he offered his body as both proof that he was really risen and a demo, a living demo of our life to come. Because he said to us, as I live, you also shall live. That's the hope that's held out to you. And Romans 10, which is on screen, says in the simplest terms that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from hell, saved for heaven, the new heaven and new earth, saved by the grace and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do that today? Pray to him. Let's bow our heads just now and do just that.